0: All right, well, I've been beginning several of these war against, or winning the war against in lessons with the World War II illustration. Why not one more? Right before World War II began, German scientists just discovered nuclear fission. That discovery made the development of an atomic bomb a theoretical possibility. And as World War II thereafter broke out, so did the fear that the Germans would develop such a bomb first. That'd be real trouble. Uh, That'd spelled the end of the war. So the Allies, led by the Americans, figured, we better develop such a bomb first. And employing some German defectors, some scientists, they set out to make their own bomb. And so began what's called, what was known as the Manhattan Project. This was the most, I think, wide-scale, undercover project probably in all human history, this project employed hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S., but only a handful actually fully knew what the end goal really was, what they're actually up to in the big picture. You had all these facilities around the country tasked with learning and figuring out how to enrich uranium and later plutonium. Plutonium itself only discovered in 1940. But employees saw tons of raw materials enter these factories and facilities, but no finished product leave. They are like, what's going on in there? What are they producing? But by July 1945, the first atomic bomb was ready to be tested. The test was codenamed Trinity, and it was deployed in the deserts of New Mexico. The test used up about a billion dollars worth of plutonium, but it was a success. America had won the race to the bomb, and in so doing, had found a way to end the war. Now, at that point, the Germans had already surrendered in World War II, but the Japanese had not. They were still fiercely fighting, seemingly, they would never surrender. So less than one month later, the decision was made to drop two of these atomic bombs on Japan and Hiroshima, Nagasaki, as you know. Several more atomic bombs were in production and would have been ready to be deployed in the next month and the month after that, but that didn't happen. The Japanese knew they had lost and formally surrendered. World War II was over. Now, I'm definitely not trying to get into the ethics of nuclear war. I think we all can agree it's a horror, But just as a fact of history, can you think of a better illustration of a secret weapon that proved decisive? A secret weapon, when unleashed, it ended a war. I can think of no better illustration. When that atomic door was opened, warfare would never be the same. And as you might expect, there is a spiritual illustration to be had here. Because in our war against sin, God has given us a type of secret weapon. He did not leave us to wage war against sin on our own, as if we could ever defeat it on our own, but he has instead equipped us with unlimited power, power to be used to defeat and overcome the war within. And this power is found in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our secret war, our secret weapon, I should say, in our war against sin. The Spirit, our secret weapon. We ended last week teasing a a key verse that promises as much. Galatians 5.16. Where Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It has been our desire both to understand the war against sin in the Christian life. And then to learn how, how to win it. How to gain victory over the flesh. Here, finally, we see a great promise. If you could just walk by the Spirit you would do it. You'd be sanctified. You would not give into the lust of the flesh. And the Spirit's power is the key. And today, as we carry on, it's time to learn more about the secret weapon has been given, that has been given to us and how to use it. We need to know better what it is, how it works. Now, first things first, I, I think a little bit of further recap is in order because last week we had to traverse some um, difficult but necessary ground in our Bible study. Most of our focus was on understanding the enemy within, namely the flesh. Walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. What is the flesh? What are these lusts of the flesh? What have we learned? Well, first, what is the flesh? The flesh is a technical term used primarily by Paul to refer to our fallen human natures. The flesh is not synonymous with our Physical bodies, it's more akin, I think, to our physical natures. That certainly affects and includes our bodies. God made us body and soul, two parts, both made initially good. In the fall, both were plunged into sin. The flesh, pertaining more to our physical nature, being inherently weak was easily tempted and captured by sin and Satan. And so we found that Scripture teaches our flesh became enslaved to sin. And in turn, our our inner man, our heart or spirit became enslaved to the flesh and we were thoroughly depraved. What was the consequence of this fall? Sinful deeds, deeds of the flesh. And sin is our problem. Sin is what we're trying to overcome. We understand that, but we learn connecting the dots between sinful deeds and sinful desires. God made us with many good desires. He gave us good boundaries for these desires inside these boundaries There's great freedom and liberty, satisfaction, righteousness. But now the flesh being fallen wants nothing more than to seek fulfillment of its desires outside of God's law or boundaries. And when you do that, that's the definition of sin. But we've been learning to uncover and fight sin at the source. And that source is the flesh with its sinful desires or lusts. The scripture uses this term repeatedly, the lusts of the flesh, desires of the flesh. Same word, lust, epithemia. It just means strong desire. It's not always used sexually. It just, it just refers to any strong desire. But after the fall, the flesh only has evil desires. And it seems to be within us just constantly pumping out these sinful desires. Before salvation, we are described as being enslaved to the flesh which again is in turn enslaved to sin. So as often as we are externally unrestricted, we give into the desires of the flesh. And when you do that, what do you get? You get the deeds of the flesh. Again, that's just sin. But we found that a real problem in this war against sin, is not really our deeds per se, but the way to win is to, to do something about those desires. The battle against sin is effectively fought, not externally, but internally. We're looking for a heart-level solution. Now, speaking of the heart, thankfully, God has done something about that. We were lost and dead inside and out. Our bodies were corrupt. Our hearts were spiritually dead. With the new birth, though, God changes us on the inside. At salvation, we're born again. The term for that is regeneration. In short, the work of regeneration, it's a work of God whereby he imparts new spiritual life to the dead sinner. This is where God brings to life those who are dead in their sins, where he makes us new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Spiritually speaking, we gain new eyes and ears and minds with which to see, hear, and understand God. Above all, we're given new hearts. God removes our our heart of stone Gives us a heart of flesh, which just means we're given a new, living, spiritually live heart. A heart that's now reoriented to God, a heart with a nature that loves God, that seeks God, that follows God. Our hearts or spirits have been made to know and love God. And so, per Matthew 7, we used to be bad trees, and what comes out of bad trees is bad fruits by nature. But He has remade us, transformed us into good trees and the result of this should be good fruit but that's not the end of the story though because while we have been made new on the inside we've not yet been made new on the outside again god made us two parts body and soul one part has been redeemed or regenerated the heart or the spirit the inner man the other part of us has not the body with the flesh That won't happen until glorification. So that means in this life, after salvation, we have new hearts living in old bodies. We have new spirits contending with the old flesh. Thankfully, though, we learned our relationship to the flesh has changed. At salvation, the sinful flesh itself doesn't change. It doesn't go anywhere. It's still there, still attached to you, still pumping out sinful desires. That doesn't go away at the new birth. But being born again, you are freed from the flesh, meaning we're no longer enslaved to it. It's no longer our master. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. No longer must we follow the flesh. We can now deny the flesh. We can seek righteousness. This matters because this this is God's goal for our lives now. We have been justified. We will be glorified. But right now, God is uniquely glorified when we are presently sanctified. God is pleased when we live in such a manner that our new position in Christ, our practice matches our position. We act and live as as we are. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. This takes time though, Because the thing about our new selves in Christ, they're new, but they start off in sapling form. You're a good tree, but you start off as a sapling. Therefore, we we need some time and effort to grow, to mature, to bear fruit. There is a need for spiritual growth. Colossians 3.10 says, we have put on the new self. We have, but it also says that new self is being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. You're new, but not yet complete. We're being renewed. The new self needs to grow. Yet this spiritual growth is not easy. It can feel more like a wrestling match because as much as we love God now and and seek to live in righteousness, and we still have the sinful flesh with its lusts that seek to drag us back into unrighteousness. We're still sinners, and indeed, we're locked in a battle now. This is an internal battle of desire. You have the old desires of the flesh on one side, the new desires of the spirit on the other side, and whichever one wins determines what we do. So that is pretty much where we left off last time, and hopefully that refresher helps you to get back up to speed. That is the nature of the war against sin in which we find ourselves. But again, tonight, there is good news that God has not left us alone in this struggle, this wrestling match. He's given us a secret weapon to help us win and is the Holy Spirit. God gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us and fill us that we might deny the flesh and walk in the light. And so again, this evening for our fourth lesson, we want to learn all about this secret weapon, and how to use it. Now, Matisse Galatians 5, we're going to get there. I want us to get to Galatians 5, a critical chapter. But before we do, I want to take you on one more very quick spin through Romans 6 through 8. You can turn to Romans 6. We referenced Romans 6 and 7 several times last week, which deal with the nature of our sin struggle on the inside We never actually made it to Romans chapter eight. We need to though, because that's where Paul tells us in greater detail, all about the secret weapon. So I think it's first going to be more beneficial if we do a quick run through back through Romans six, seven into chapter eight. This will both hopefully crystallize everything we learned last week about the flesh versus the spirit and also prepare us to learn about the spirit this week. So Romans six, not every verse, a, a quick survey again, but we'll go to that key verse, Romans 6, 11, where he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a positional truth. In Christ, you have been forgiven of sin's penalty. You have been freed from sin's power. We're no longer enslaved to it. Therefore, remember that big therefore, verse 12. Therefore, because of that, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. See, now that you've been freed from sin's power, don't let it call the shots in your life anymore. Specifically, though, you'll notice how he calls out our mortal bodies. As we learned, we've been reborn, remade where? In the spirit. We have a new spirit, a new man, a new inner nature. Oldness remains though, where in our mortal bodies, our bodies are still sin cursed, they come with sinful desire in the related term the flesh. The flesh is naturally oriented away from God and the things of God, and we still have it, but we 're no longer enslaved to it. Hence Paul can say don't let it reign before salvation, you had no choice, but now you have a type of choice: don 't let it reign. Don't obey these lusts. These lusts, they're still in you, but you don't have to obey them. Instead, deny them. No longer use your bodies for evil. Verse 13. He says right after, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. uh, As instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is a big component of our spiritual growth. We are to overcome sin and stop obeying these lusts of the flesh. That's easier said than done, though, even for Paul himself. Let's jump into Romans chapter 7. It's just a a review. Romans 7, verse 18, though. He goes on later. He says, Reflecting on his own condition, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. He says that in his mind, he loves the law of God in this chapter. He wants to do good. He's willing. His new spirit is willing. But sin still lives in the flesh. There's nothing good in the flesh. And it often leads him to do the very thing he doesn't want to do. Indwelling sin in the body is a big problem. He says down in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Once again, the inner man or new self loves God, wants to do what is right. That is a result of the new birth. If you're saved, that should resonate with you. If you're saved, there should be a strong part of you inside saying you love God, you love his ways, you love righteousness, you you want to obey him and follow him. You, you never want to sin again. You joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But the problem is our souls are still inseparably united to our bodies, which still have the flesh. And so there's still a very real part of us that does not feel that way. Indwelling sin in our bodies stunts our growth. And that can be very frustrating that that part of us wants to sin. Our flesh still wants us to sin. It's frustrating, which is why Paul himself cries out in the next verse, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the answer. He says, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This is, this is the experience we have, this type of schizophrenic Christian experience between the spirit and the flesh. But he's exasperated at his own condition, which is our condition. You want to grow, your flesh inhibits you. But thanks be to God through Christ, Christ is always the ultimate answer. We will one day be set free from these sin-cursed bodies. We will be given resurrected bodies complete with no more sinful desires. In the meantime, Christ has the power to enable us not to live by the lust of the flesh. He gives us that power. Where do you think that power comes from or in or through? The Holy Spirit. Now we get into Romans 8. And what's so interesting about Romans 8? In the first seven chapters of Romans combined, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit once. Once. But now in Romans 8 alone, he's going to reference the Holy Spirit about 20 times. The Spirit's work now takes center stage. And this chapter really serves as the theological basis for the whole concept of walking by the Spirit. The Spirit was given to us by Christ to help us walk in newness of life. Romans 8.4, if you're in Christ Jesus by faith, you don't walk according to the flesh anymore. You walk according to the spirit. We do not walk or live by the flesh anymore. We live and walk by the spirit. What that means, he goes into verses five through eight. We will come back to that. But for now though, Paul goes on to explain that the main thing that sets Christians apart is having the spirit. That the spirit is the one who makes our spirits alive or born again. He says, verse 11, as well. One day the spirit will remake our bodies too. Back to verse 10 first. He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In you. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he will one day give new life to your mortal bodies, just like he's already done to your spirit. And so, really, get this the Holy Spirit is the answer to chapter 7, verse 24. Who will set me free from the body of this death? The answer is the Holy Spirit. That will take place at the resurrection. But that's future. Until that day, what are we to do? Is the Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives now just only good news for the future? Which, all, we, all we have to do is just wait for the future. Does he offer us no help in the present? No, he, he certainly helps us to live out the newness we have right now. Indeed, we are under obligation to the spirit, to live according to the spirit. That's verse 12, Romans eight twelve. So then brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So here it is, we're we're under obligation. If you're truly saved, now you're under obligation to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. And you live by the Spirit, how? Same thing as verse 14, by being led by the Spirit. It means the same as being led by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. And the Spirit will then lead you to do what? He says, to put to death The deeds of the body, thanatao, to kill. The old body remains, with it, sinful desires. Deeds of the flesh will result if we give in to the lust of the flesh. But we must do that no longer. Romans 6.12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. Rather, kill it, kill them. Mortify, we'll we'll cover mortification in the last lesson. but, But kill the deeds of the flesh. What well, Paul's saying here in Romans 8, it's just the same as what he said in Romans 6, only now he's making clear how we do it, but it's not by our power or strength. It's by the Holy Spirit. Only by means of the Holy Spirit's power can you put to death the deeds of the body. You must be led by the Spirit. That's your only hope of winning this war against sin. The Holy Spirit is the secret weapon in the war against sin. Okay, so that, that took a little time, but like I said, hopefully that refreshed all we learned about the battle between the flesh and the spirit, and I hope it prepares you to fully appreciate and take advantage of the secret weapon. God has given us the spirit for this very reason. It's not I think it's time we learn how, how to use it. Let's, let's finally head over to Galatians 5. Turn over, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is very much like Romans. Paul wrote Galatians first. It's shorter. He wrote Romans later. It's like the long version of Galatians. Romans is long Galatians. Galatians is like mini Romans written beforehand. They're very similar in all of his uh, theological goals. The only difference is that in Galatians, Paul is directly setting his sight on the Judaizers. These are Jewish false teachers who were infiltrating the Galatian churches, teaching justification by the works of the law and sanctification by the works of the law. But Paul refutes them all throughout. For example, Galatians three, two, he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh How did they begin the race of faith? How were they justified? It was not by works. It was not by the works of the law. It was by faith, by the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who got them going on this race of faith. So how do you think they're going to continue and finish the race of faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are they going to be perfected by the flesh? I don't think so. The same spirit who started their race will propel them to finish. Paul picks up these these thoughts later in chapter 5. When the Galatians were relying on this spirit, he says in chapter 5, verse 7, they were running well. Once upon a time, they were running well. They need to get back to running well. He switches from running to walking and picks it up in 5.16. This is what they need to do to get back on track. Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This verse by itself is actually quite simple. To walk is a very common metaphor in the New Testament, especially by Paul, for how you live. It comes as a command, meaning this is something you can obey or disobey. So it is possible for you to walk by the Spirit. It is possible for you to not walk by the spirit. This also is a present active imperative, signifying this command is perpetual. These are standing orders from the commander in chief. Continually as a lifestyle, you're to walk by the spirit. And you'll notice this command comes with a result, a consequence. It's basically conditional. As you walk by the spirit, if you walk by the spirit, as a result, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. That's, that's great. That's exactly what we're after. How, how do we do that? Let's think a little bit more about what it means to walk by the Spirit. Again, it's a metaphor for practically living by the Spirit. He says down in verse 25, "...if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit." If we live by the Spirit positionally, let us walk by the Spirit practically. Just as we learned in Romans 8, we no longer live or walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That means your life is to be controlled or led by the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's desires. Paul goes on to explain himself, again, down in verse 18. He affirms that walking by the Spirit is essentially synonymous with being led by the spirit. Verse 18. If you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. You are walking or living where the spirit leads. If you would just continually follow the spirit's leading, you would be sanctified. Where exactly does the spirit lead us? Well, in the opposite direction of the flesh. That's, that's for sure in the opposite direction of the flesh. That's verse 17. Walk by the spirit, will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire, lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Meaning the spirit sets its desires against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The flesh leads us in rebellion against God. The spirit leads us in submission to God. The flesh leads us in disobedience. The spirit leads us in obedience. The flesh leads us in unrighteousness. The spirit leads us in righteousness. You get the point. You know where the spirit is leading you. But you see a little critical lesson hidden in verse 17. We get Where the Spirit leads us to righteousness, that's probably obvious, but how exactly will the Spirit lead us there? Are we talking some mystical, subjective feeling? That is, unfortunately, how many interpret walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit as a type of mystical, subjective feeling. That's never it. That's never it. The Spirit's leading is not mystical or subjective, but it is internal it's in verse 17. How does the spirit lead us? By, by its desires. By our desires, our new desires, epithemia, lusts. It's not just the flesh that's trying to lead you with its desires. It's also the spirit. They're in opposition to one another. We already established the fact that we have the flesh. that's in us. It's pumping out these lusts or desires which seek to lead us towards sin. You see how verse 17 is teaching the Holy Spirit within us now is at the same time. It's like he's pumping out his own desires. The Spirit is filling our new selves with new desires. These are desires in opposition to the flesh, desires for righteousness. These are good desires. And by leading us according to them, we will walk in the deeds of the Spirit. Again, in salvation, the less. Or desires of the flesh, they don't go away. They're still there. But being made new in spirit, being given the Holy Spirit, that means we have a new set of desires within us. There's two. There's a competition in us between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. This is the end of Romans 7. Remember, he said that with my mind, with our new minds, we serve the law of God. But with our bodies, with our flesh, we're still serving the law of sin. So you really can picture it like a tug of war. Our old flesh is on one side. Our new spirit is on the other side, backed by the Holy Spirit. And, and a tug of war ensues. Both are pulling at us, tugging us according to their desires. Our flesh is beckoning us to give into its lusts. If you do that, if you give into The desires of the flesh. What's the result? The result is verse 19. What does he say right after? It's the deeds of the flesh. Not desires. Now we're talking deeds. Because you've given into the desires. Verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. And he just lists a bunch of sins. Immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. The list goes on. That's where sin comes from. You've given into the, the lust. The desires of the flesh. But on the flip side. The spirit now is in us. A new force we didn't have before, it's also beckoning, or he is also beckoning at us to give into his lusts, his righteous desires. And if you do that, if you give into, follow the desires of the Spirit, what's the result of that? Well, that'd be chapter 5, verse 22, right after. It would be the deeds of the Spirit, or as Paul calls it, the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, on the flip side, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We'll come back to that phrase, no law. But the language of fruit is intentional. How do you make a tree bear fruit? You can't. It's it's in its nature. You, you can't do anything. It's, you can't just shout at a tree, make more oranges. Uh, trust me, I really wish that was possible. We have many failed attempts at fruit trees. It's, it's not easy. But that, that's not, not how you grow trees. Likewise, it's not enough to simply bark at a fellow Christian, be more patient, be more loving, just, just stop lusting, just be peaceful. That's not enough. You can't just tell them. That's not how you make fruit appear. These virtues, these, these things, they are the result of something else. They just pop up as a result of a healthy tree. Fruit, it just pops up. If a tree is good and healthy, well-watered fruit, they just have a way of appearing. It's in the nature of a good tree. Likewise, these virtues that we're after, the spiritual growth we're after, these fruit of the Spirit, they're, they're all results. What are they results of? The results of walking by the Spirit, which is to say, of being led by the Spirit's desires. Write that down, highlight that, try and just understand that concept. You bear the fruit, the Spirit, when you are led by the Spirit's desires. We're not done, we'll continue to unpack that, but but get that. You bear the fruit of the Spirit when you are led by the Spirit's desires. And so really, it it is like there's a constant tug of war inside of us, a constant opposition between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. The next big question, though, is who's going to win? Who will win this tug of war? The answer is very simple. Whichever one's stronger. Whichever one is stronger. God made us to act according to our strongest desires the strongest set of desires in us. So whose voice is louder? The flesh or the spirit? Who's tugging harder? The flesh or the spirit. Which desires are stronger? You will do what you want to do. What do you want to do more? What's, which desires are stronger? I mean, you can picture an actual tug of war. On one side, just a normal adult man. On the other side, a 10-year-old boy. Now, very difficult question here. Who's going to win that tug of war? It's pretty obvious. The man, the stronger one. And so it is with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the spirit within us, whichever one is stronger wins. The stronger set of desires is going to win. We act according to our stronger set of desires, and whichever one it is, the result will be either the deeds of the flesh, sin, or the fruit of the spirit. It's never promised that in salvation, All the old desires of the flesh are eradicated. They're not, but you need not obey them or act on them. You can deny them, turn from them, replace them. But that only happens when the new desires within you are stronger than the old desires. And that in turn only happens when you're being led by the spirit. You have to see to it that the new desires of the spirit within you are stronger than the old desires of the flesh. Still, you might wonder, how can our flesh ever overpower the Holy Spirit? I mean, how can the Spirit ever lose such a tug of war? Is that, is that possible? Is the flesh stronger than the Holy Spirit? Obviously not. We just need to clarify really quickly our active and our passive role in this tug of war. What is our active role? What is our passive role in this tug of war? We need to clarify our role. And you see the active and passive nature of sanctification put best and simplest in Philippians 2. We're close. Turn to Philippians 2. Right after Galatians, right after Ephesians. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Just have time to look at these two verses. But they say, Enough. Philippians 2, 12, he says, So so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 12, the command. This is the active side. The command is to work out your salvation. It does not say work for your salvation. He's talking to people who are already believers. They've already received the gift of salvation by faith. God has worked salvation in them. Now it's time for them to work it out. It simply means to live it out, to live in obedience. But how? Paul assures them in the next verse that God is at work in you. For they can do this. It's established because God is at work in them. God is providing power for you to work. In fact, God must work in you. Otherwise, you've got no hope. Your labor is in vain. But precisely because God is at work in you, you can grow. You can overcome sin. What is the nature of God's work within us? Well, it says in verse 13, it's it's both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This means God is there working inside of us both at the level of our deeds, but even at the level of our desires. God doesn't just force us to obey like robots. No, he's, he's, he's working on us by doing something to our desires. Verse 13, he's at work within us to change our will, to provide us the will we need to seek righteousness on our own. And functionally, God works at the level of our desires via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to reform, reshape this this will, this desire, where you deny sin because you don't want to do it anymore. And instead, you you do what is right because you want to. You just, you want to do what is right. No one has to tell you anymore. You just, you want to do all the right things. Wouldn't that be nice? Look, God has already given us his indwelling spirit at salvation, right? How much did he give us? Like 10 percent 50% he's given all of it. We have been completely filled with the spirit. We've been given all of his power. It's the whole reason that the spirit's coming. Acts chapter one, verse eight, to fill us with God's power. The power is not meant for parlor tricks. It's meant for holiness. He's called the Holy Spirit for a reason. We've been given all the power we could ever need for our walk and our witness. The spirit gives us all the power we could ever need for our walk and our witness. But just because we've been given the full power of the Spirit, that does not mean we are always utilizing it. We're not always tapping into it as we should. That is what we need to do. And that pertains to our active role in sanctification. Passively, the Spirit will work to empower us and change our desires. That's just going to happen to us. Passively, the Spirit works in us, changes our desires, that we do what is right. Because we want to. That happens when actively we tap into the spirit's ever present power. In a sense, no illustration is perfect, but in a sense, you can think of the spirit like a nuclear power plant. It is operating at a hundred percent capacity. It is pumping out full power to your house. You are connected to the grid. In fact, the spirit is so powerful he can he can empower the lives or the houses of every Christian on the planet. Easily. It doesn't run out of juice. But you have access to the spirit's unlimited power. It's, just, it's in your walls. That little plug you know, the outlet, it's just right there. Meanwhile, you, you have a power tool and you want to use it to do some work. Or maybe you have an electric fence and you want to use it to keep predators away from your animals. But, you know, the thing is that power tool and that electric fence become quite worthless if you don't plug them in. They can do nothing if they're not plugged in if they're going to work for you, they must be connected to the source, the power source. You see, we don't, we don't bear fruit for God by hard work. You just can't force yourself to be more patient, more loving, more kind. That is the result of the Spirit's work in you. The Spirit's got to work on you. That happens when you access the Spirit's power on the flip side, you can't fight the flesh and overcome temptation by willpower. That too is a consequence of the Spirit's work. The Spirit must empower you on the inside, your new desires that they're just bigger and stronger than the desires of the flesh. And so naturally, you're not, you're going to win. You should get the point though, that our active role in spiritual growth It's less about doing things. It's far more about putting yourself in the path of the Spirit's power. Putting yourself in the path of the Spirit's power. And yes, we will define that later. But think back to that tug of war where it's a grown man versus a 10-year-old boy. It's it's no contest. But what if now standing behind the 10-year-old boy was the world's strongest man? Now, and they're pulling together, it's a no contest in the other direction it's not even close. And that's that's kind of like the spirit's role in our lives. The Holy Spirit versus the flesh is no contest. And the spirit is way more powerful than your flesh. But God has given us one active part to play, and the real question is you know, how much rope have you given to the Holy Spirit? How much control over your life do you yield to the spirit? How much of a hold does the Spirit have on your life? How much are you tapping into the Spirit's power? Again, how Christians grow, it's not by self-effort. It's not by trying really hard. It's not by someone barking law at them. In Christ, by faith, we have a new nature. It starts out really small, a little sapling form, but it's real. It still has the flesh. The flesh, probably pretty strong, but the Holy Spirit is working in us to grow us, to change us, to conform us to Christ's image, to lead us in right living. And more specifically, the Spirit accomplishes this by perpetually reshaping our desires. Reshaping our desires. He morphs and redefines what we find good and right and beautiful and lovely, valuable, desirable. The Spirit changes how we define all those things. And as the spirit fills you, you find that over time, you want to do what is right. Not because of some law or rule, but because you just want to. Obedience comes from your heart. This is why Paul said in Galatians 5.18, those who are led by the spirit are not under the law. You don't need the law when you have the spirit. I don't need a list of commands telling me what to do anymore. My new heart shaped by the spirit tells me what to do and he will lead me in righteousness just imagine you know what if unrighteousness became undesirable to you even repulsive you wouldn't do those things anymore and what if righteousness doing what is right became attractive desirable you would live right it wouldn't be a burden just think of whatever sin you're struggling with right now whatever it is a deed a thought your speech Whatever troubles you, you're doing it because your flesh wants to. It's getting at something. But what if you found that thing now just repulsive? You wouldn't do it anymore. An illustration I used a long time ago. It's stuck in my own head because it's, I guess it's so memorable and, and so gross. But it's a McDonald's illustration. you have got to McDonald's. They've got those kids play areas with the balls, the ball pit and the structure. And, you, you know, we've gone a few times with the kids, although really not anymore. They're, they're pretty gross. But, I mean, ever there, and you see some kid, like, blowing up his, his mouth in the glass, licking the glass, licking the door, just little kids all over the place running around. It's like a greenhouse for germs, and especially, like, post-COVID, this thing's got to be torn down. But you've seen that, right? There's some kid, like, blowing on the glass at McDonald's playground. It's just probably the nastiest thing. Question, though, when was the last time you did that? When was the last time you popped over to a McDonald's and you're you're blowing on the glass of the little kid's playground? I hope the answer is never, at least not since you were a kid. Why don't you do that anymore? You know, there's no signs in there that says, parents, please don't lick the glass. No sign is needed because I trust you have zero desire to do that. There's no part of you that wants to do that. It's, It's gone. In fact, you find it repulsive. Once upon a time, though, you didn't. When you were two or three, you didn't know better. You're immature, you're foolish, but you grew up, you matured, you gained knowledge of germs and sickness and respectable behavior. So you don't do that anymore because you don't want to do that anymore. You don't even need to be told not to do that anymore. You've changed. It's a silly illustration and also pretty gross illustration, but spiritually it's, it's pretty much the same thing. And think about the sin you might struggle with drunkenness, Drug use. What if they repulsed you? Jealousy. Envy. What if you were perfectly content? Outbursts of anger. Rage. What if you were so at peace and trusting God's control, you feel no need to blow up in rage? What if within you, just compassion wells up? You see someone in need, no one has to tell you, be kind to that person. You just, you want to be kind to that person. But that is maturity. It's brought about by the spirit reshaping us from the inside as we put ourselves in the path of his power. Okay, so clearly we want the Holy Spirit on our side, and clearly we want him working for us, empowering us. We want to tap into his power to change our desires. So we have the next big question that you're wondering. How do you do that? We're still talking metaphors. How do you actually do it? How do you walk by the spirit? How are you led by the spirit? How do you plug into the spirit's power? How do you yield to the spirit as the strong man in the tug of war? How do I promote the desires of the spirit so as to be controlled by the spirit? And I will answer you this week, actually. You don't even have to wait till next week. I'll answer you. The answer is to renew your minds. That is the answer. To renew your minds. That is the recurring biblical concept that captures what we must actively do to put ourselves in the path of the Spirit's power, who will then work on us and change us. You must renew your minds. You feed your body through your mouth that it might grow strong. You feed your new inner man through your mind that it might grow strong. The mind is where it's at. It's through renewing your mind that you starve the desires of the flesh. You don't want to starve that thing out so it's weak. It's also through renewing your mind that you feed the desires of your new spirit. In a dog fight, usually the bigger dog will win. Which dog is bigger? Well, usually the one who's better fed. You need to feed. Like I said, well, we're only going to tease this concept now. This will be our, our full attention next week, but I, I want to get into it. We do have some time. This was back to Romans 8. We skipped over a few verses, Romans 8, 5 through 8. You can go back there. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. Paul makes this connection for us. Right in the heart of his teaching on the secret weapon in sanctification. He's Talking about the spirit. What does he say? Romans 8, verse 5. He says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, he says, essentially set their minds on the things of the spirit. Verse six, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those in the flesh, that's, that's the unbeliever. That's before regeneration. We still have the flesh. We're no longer in the flesh. Those in the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. That verb, set your mind, means to, to think. It's talk about talking about what you, what you dwell on, your mindset, what you're devoted to, what you regard, what you fill your mind with. Those in the flesh, they gleefully set their mind or fill their minds with the things of the flesh. You know what that does? That feeds and incites their sinful desires. They got lust of the flesh too, and they're just feeding those dogs. They're giving them all the food. The principle is simple. What you dwell on will dwell in you. What you dwell on will dwell in you. Your thinking most often determines your doing. It's different for us, though. We're no longer in the flesh. We're in the Spirit. For us who are in the Spirit, we must walk by the Spirit, which means what? Back in verse 5. It's akin to setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. The result of that is life and peace, he says. That's what we're after. This is Romans 8. After this comes Romans 9 through 11. Paul goes on to talk about one more theological issue. Restoration of future Israel. Then you get to Romans 12. Turn there. This is where Paul begins to unleash all the practical exhortations for how we ought to live now being justified. Okay. His point. Justification by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. He explains it all, Romans 1 through 11. Now, how ought we to live in light of all the truth of Romans 1 through 11? How ought we to live? And he unloads all these commands, Romans 12 through 16. But it all starts with what? Romans 12, 1 through 2. Romans 12, 1. He says, therefore, and like our our men learned our men's retreat. I do believe this goes back to the whole letter so far. This is another big therefore. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, How are we transformed? We still need to be transformed. We're made new, but the new man must be renewed to the image of Christ. We're sapling. We have to grow. We have the flesh. We have to fight it. How do we do this? He tells us, by the renewing of your mind. And when your mind is renewed, you prove the will of God. You prove the law. You live it. This is the same thing as Ephesians 4. Flip over there real fast. Right after Galatians, get into Ephesians 4. Paul teaches the exact same thing in Ephesians 4 and this is now by way of preview he tells us verse 22 talking about the Christian walk he says that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit to so lay aside the old self it's dead it's gone lay it aside Instead, verse 24, you got to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's, that's our aim here. How do we do that though? How do we put off the old self, put on the new self? The, the middle verse with the uh, uh, middle imperative or middle indicative tells us, verse 23, the middle verse between 22 and 24 tells us that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's how you do it. The mind is the key. The mind is the means by which we access the spirit's power. Hence, Colossians 3, another huge chapter on spiritual growth, starts off with what? Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul, especially, cares so much about what we do with our mind, where we put our mind. What fills our mind? What enters our mind? As he knows a whole lot, what what goes in comes out. What's in your mind will control you. So this now is your work. This is the role you must play actively, daily, continually until you die. Renew your mind. By doing this, you put yourself in the path of the spirit's power. By doing this, you plug into the spirit's power. By doing this, the spirit works in you to reshape your desires. By doing this, you're not conformed to this world. You're transformed to the image of Christ. The renewal of the mind is is the big answer, the big key that unlocks what we must do. Now, at this point, speaking of the mind, I can read your mind because you still have one more question. If you're with me at this point, you're still wondering, okay, we we get the latest step now, renew the mind. How do I do that? How do you renew the mind? And I bet you can read my mind at this point. And what am I going to (laughs) say? We'll find out next week. But I can say we're finally at the point of leaving metaphors behind. No, we'll we'll still use them. But at the sense, another sense, we're going to leave them behind. We're finally ready to actually get down to brass tacks and, and talk about all the practical implementation you've been seeking. Because next week, we'll finally be able to connect every last dot See the holistic picture of spiritual warfare and spiritual growth. See exactly what God tells us to do to win the war against sin. We'll be able to do it in the right way for the right reasons with a a humble dependence on the spirit. You'll see how it all works. So we're almost done. We're very close. Hang on for one more week for that final payoff. That's all we'll say. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we just want to exalt you together this evening. We gather to sit, study your word. And we've learned a lot, but it, it can't just be a mental exercise for us. Knowledge puffs up. We need knowledge, but this is not our end goal. We're, we're looking for equipping to, to learn how we ought to live. Because we do love you. We, we do confess with the law of God in our minds. We love you. We love God. We love your righteousness. We love your ways. We, we hate our sin. We've seen what we've been saved from and the effects it has on us, on others, how it hurts others, how it dishonors you. We, we, we wish we would be freed from the body of this death. Yet in your word, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've, you've equipped us with the power plant of the spirit. And you tell us what we must do. And so I pray we, as we meditate on these truths, we, we need to. We need to take them in, dwell in them, fill our minds with them. And uh, that, that we simply ask you would be faithful to, uh, to change us from the inside out. We can ask that in total confidence, knowing you will. Help us to be faithful to renew our minds. Help us to be in your word. Help us to be in prayer. Help us to be at the church. Help us to uh, take Lord's Supper, to, to be baptized. All the, the elements we'll find you give to us to change us from the inside out. May we avail ourselves of these. We just look to you for grace for power we, we know we can't run this race alone the spirit started us the spirit will finish us we can't do this in our own strength and pray we come away with just a wholehearted dependence we must work we must do but give us a wholehearted dependence on you on your spirit for all things in life and godliness we, we just need your help be with us continue to equip us we long for next week to, to figure out even more until then keep us in your will it's in christ's name we pray amen